to the point where they saw it fit to trick him or to trick the king into signing a decree that would uh, entrap Daniel. So um, and that was that for 30 days you weren't to pray to any man or God other than Darius. And I was challenged there in verse or Daniel 6, verse 10. <clears throat> when Daniel found that out, it says, but when Daniel learned the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upper room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He played th prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to God. So there was no delay there. He, he went straight home, opened his windows and prayed. <clears throat> we know that... Uh, we know that God spared Daniel there, too, in that story. He was thrown into the lions. The den was sealed. And the next morning, he was still there. And then it, um, delivered from that. And Darius, uh, in Daniel 6, 26, he also made a statement similar to Nebuchadnezzar had earlier about the three friends there. He made a decree that everyone should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. So there we see the king came around to also praising God for that. We also know Daniel as a prophet, being able to interpret dreams and visions. He predicted Jesus coming as the Messiah. He also predicted um, future times. Um, we have, we have uh, some end times prophecy that comes out of Daniel, how God's kingdom will come as a stone and replace all earthly kingdoms. <clears throat> So how, so I was encouraged that these men, you know, they were so bold and so faithful despite what they were facing. But where did that, uh, you know, how did that all start out? Um, you know, maybe we won't have huge things like that to face. But going back to chapter 1, and I'm going to read through that, <clears throat> we see as young men that they had a choice to make here. As we read through Daniel 1, um, setting up the setting here, God had, God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to come and conquer Jerusalem because they had turned their back on him um, and, and send them away into exile. So uh, we see at the beginning there that these men were chosen. They were pleasing to the eye. They were strong. They were healthy. They were of noble birth. So the king chose them, brought them right into the palace, gave them everything that Babylon had to offer was essentially at their fingertips. All the modern knowledge, they, they changed their names. They tried <clears throat> changing who they were. You know, they changed their names and they were going to indoctrinate them of the Chaldeans' teaching. But we know that they remained faithful even at a young age there. And then as we read through the chapter, we'll see how God, God uh, gave them blessing towards the end of the chapter. <clears throat> so I'm going to go ahead and read through uh, the 21 verses here. Daniel 1, during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure hold of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family, and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning. They are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal place. 
um, trained these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Ezra were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff remained, <coughs> renamed them with Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hanani was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, and Azariah was called Abednego. But Daniel was determined to not defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel, but he responded, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine if you become pale and thin compared to the other young among you your age. I'm afraid the king will have, my, have me beheaded. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Ezra. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water. Daniel said, at the end of the day, see how we look compared to other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion, tested them for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the other young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and wine provided for the others. God gave these four men as unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings and visions of dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was complete, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king told, talked with them, and no one oppressed him as much as Daniel, Hanai, Mishael, and Ezra. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than that of the magicians or enchanters in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Sirius. And that would have been Nebuchadnezzar, and then I think the... Um, the king after him, and then he was in for like three kings and held at a royal position of um, where they saw, they went to him for uh, input or wisdom to interpret things. So we see that even at a young age or, and maybe what, it wasn't just about the food, it wasn't about the diet, it was about their convictions and what they held to, to be true, what God had commanded them, even as far as their diet. And they were in this new place, they had an opportunity um, you know, they, there was, Babylon had its own gods, you know, maybe up to seven or more uh, mythical gods. They had their own gods. They had them, they were trying to teach them to be Babylonians. And uh, they, they stood for what they knew was right, um, even at an early age there, and maybe a small way there. So I was, I was encouraged by that. Um, as, we, as we see um, things that we know to be true, questioned, or um, maybe said that they're not true, that we take encouragement to, Stand on the truth that we know that God teaches in his word. And then, just as the kings did in Daniel's day, they usually came around and praised God. We, we know in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those of earth and those under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Lord Jesus, or Lord Christ is Lord, to the glory of the God the Father. Let's pray for Lord, thank you we're able to come together and worship you in this way. 
Um, pray a blessing on our service today, with those who lead out in the Sunday school hour and song service, Lord, also for the minister as he brings us the message, message today, that you would he'd be able to share what you've laid on his heart. May we be open to that and receive that. Um, to pray a blessing on the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather like this, and we thank you again for your word that is available to us, that we can understand it. Thank you for the message that you have for us, and we pray that you bless Brother Lauren as he presents this message to us, as he shares what you've laid upon his heart. May you give him understanding, clear mind. May we be able to receive this and apply it to our lives, and may we as a church bring honor and praise and glory to you as we live our lives and as we work together building your kingdom. Thank you for your presence here with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Greet each one in Jesus' name this morning and welcome you to to our service today. And I hope and trust you have been um, filled and nourished already so far with our Sunday school and time of singing. You know, as a believer, this time of year is a time of great joy for us and also a time of great sorrow. It's a time of joy as we celebrate Christ conquering death in the grave. And also the time of gratefulness for the new life that we can have in Christ Jesus. It's a time of year when we remember what our Lord and Savior did for us on the cross and how he blessed us with life, and not only life, but abundant life. But it's also a time of sorrow as we recognize the impact that our sins have. You know, our sins is what took Jesus to the cross. You know, if it wasn't for the sin of mankind, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross to die there. So just a thought on that is I want you to consider sometimes we can go through life and think that my sin only impacts me, that it really doesn't make that big of a difference if I do this or not. But it does. Jesus went to the cross because of your sin and my sin. And not only Jesus, but it also affects other people in our lives. So don't let the devil fool you into thinking that your sin doesn't impact others. It does. Our sin resulted in the death of an innocent man. Jesus came to this earth while we were yet sinners. Before we understood his mission, he died for us so that we could be pardoned from our sin and accept the free gift of salvation. Recently, as I was thinking about, you know, we go through Good Friday, we go through Easter, and we're looking forward to our communion service next week. As I was thinking about that, my mind was drawn to the verse in John 1. John 1 is the account of Jesus, or sorry, John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the world. He was preparing the people for the coming of Christ, and as he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. So this morning I want to heed John's words, and I want to take a little time to behold the Lamb. And so for text, I want to read from John chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 37. 
John 1, 14-37 And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have we received, and the grace and for, grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give the answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the ways of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees, and they asked him, and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who cometh after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latchets I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Berebetha beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water. The same said unto me, Upon whom thou seest shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him the same is he which is baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and I, and I saw, and bare record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus. As he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. So this passage of scripture is John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the, to the nation of Israel. And in verse 17, he mentions, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at... That's one of the aspects I'm going to look at this morning, how the, the change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But the verse that I, my key verse this morning is verse 29, where he says, um, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This verse encapsulates the reason that Jesus came to earth. This was the moment that the world had been waiting for, waiting for the Messiah to come to bring deliverance, hope, and freedom 
Many prophecies had been told about this time. Many people had longed to, to see the day when the Messiah, the Deliverer, would come. And so there's three things that I want to look, look at this morning in this verse. First, I want to look at the sins of the world. Then I want to look at the Lamb, a sacrificial Lamb, and then Jesus as the perfect Lamb. And so first of all, I want to take a look at the sins of the world. I want to look at the why of Jesus coming. And many of you have maybe heard about you need to know the why. If you're doing something, you need to know the why of it. Um, that pertains to a lot of things. Just life in general. Why are you doing what you're doing? In business, why is like why the why of your business? The why of our church here this morning? Why are we here? It's, a, it's something we need to consider. And so we want to look at the why of Christ's coming. And that why was the sins of the world. You know, in this world, we as humanity have a big problem. It's a problem that we can't fix on our own. It's called sin. In our modern world, we can study and solve very complex problems. But this is one problem that mankind can't produce a solution for. Man has invented very complex machines to conquer large problems we face in life. But we can't come up with a gadget for this one. There's no app for this. Only God can provide us with a solution for the problem. So sin is when we violate the laws of God, when we go our own way and serve our own flesh. Sin entered the world back in the Garden of Eden when man made a choice that was against what God had intended for them. They ate of the tree in the Garden of Eden. God told them that eating of this tree would bring death, and this is still true today. We suffer death because of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. When we sin against God, death comes. Sin brings death, it brings pain, it brings bondage, and it brings conflict. So we can ask, who of us has sinned? All of us have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none of us that are exempt from this. I'd like to read 1 John 8 also. Sorry, 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here again we can see God in Scripture telling us that we have all failed here. We have all come short of the glory of God. And if we deny this fact, we are deceiving ourselves. God is righteous and holy, and therefore sin cannot enter his presence. Sin is offensive to God. Therefore, in our sinful state, we cannot have relationship with him. So that relationship with God was broken in the garden. God could not commune with sin. But God wants to have a relationship with us. He wants, to be, he wants us to be a part of the family and bring blessings to us. You know, many times we wish that we could live in a perfect world. You know, we say, if in, a, in a perfect world I would do this or that. There is a place that is perfect, that God is in. But sin cannot enter there. A place where there is no evil, where bad things don't happen. God is preparing a place 
like this for us. He has made a home for us to live with him after we leave this world. But God is good and perfect. And if he is to remain that way, if he is to remain good and perfect, unrighteousness cannot enter there. He cannot allow sin to enter his presence. This means that us as a sinful people cannot come to the presence of a perfect and holy God. And this is how the devil attempted to spoil the beauty of the earth God had created. God had created this world that was perfect and good, and the devil thought he was going to ruin it for God. He was going to separate us from God. But the beauty of this is God could have left us to our punishment. He could have just wiped the slate clean, and he did somewhat with the flood in Noah's time. But instead, he showed us one of his other attributes that he has, and that is love and mercy. You know, in the, the New Testament age, we lived in a time when we see and experience the grace of God to a greater degree. But in the Old Testament, we see the attributes of God's holiness, perfection, and righteousness. And if you read the first few books of the Bible, you see a lot of this, a lot of specific laws and things that he set up so that man could have somewhat of a restored relationship um, with God. God used these laws and rigid practices as Paul referred to in the book of Roman. This was to show us that, you know, on our own we can't attain the perfection of God. God used the nation of Israel to bring Christ to us, to the world. Through the nation of Israel and their relationship with God, we can see a small glimpse of God's holiness. And so I think if, if you want to avoid, boil down the Bible and its principles to a simple message, it's a message of restoration. It's a story of God restoring humanity to himself. A relationship that was marred and destroyed by sin, God wanted to fix that. He wanted to restore us to him. And God's principles also bring us restoration with our fellow man. So that's the... You know, we look at that verse and it says the sins of the world. That's the problem that we're facing. And then I want to, now I want to switch to what is God's solution. So the other thing that John mentioned in that verse was the lamb. Why did he call Jesus a lamb? So that's the second point I want to explore is why does John refer to Jesus as a lamb? And this statement points us back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that they had back then. And I want to look at two examples of that. And probably the first one that our mind automatically goes to, especially with the communion, is the time of the Passover. When God passed over the children of Israel and spared their lives. So just the setting here of the Passover, you know, the, the descendants of Abraham... Called the, children of e called the children of Israel had come to be in Egypt because of the great famine that had happened hundreds of years prior to these events that we read about in the books of, book of Exodus. Joseph, the son of Jacob, had become the second in command in the Egyptian government. And then his brothers came to Egypt looking for food and then resulted in Joseph inviting them to live in Egypt. There the Lord blessed them very richly. Exodus 1.7 tells us, And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty. 
and the land was filled with them. There was, you know, there was only 70 people that came with Jacob to um, Egypt at the time of the famine. And now some 400 later, years later, there was 600,000 men besides children that left Egypt. So they, God had richly blessed them in their time in Egypt. But unfortunately, at this point, they were under the rule of a pharaoh that had forgotten the good things that Joseph had done for the country of Egypt. He was afraid of the children of Israel and how they would tur- turn against Egypt and overthrow them. He was afraid that if they were attacked by an enemy that the, Egypt- that the Israelites would join with the enemy against them. So he came up with a plan on how to deal with them. First, he made them into slaves and compelled them to hard labor. Then the Bible said that he made their lives bitter with hard bondage. They had to make mortar and bricks and and serve in their fields. Pharaoh also commanded the Jewish midwives to kill the male children that were born to Israelite women. The midwives refused to do this, and God blessed them for it. And the harder Pharaoh tried to stop the Israelites, the more the people grew. Verse 12 of Exodus 1 says, The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And that's something we need to remember. We need to stay true to Christ, even when times get hard. And he will bless our lives for it. You know, the harder people try to stamp out God, the more it seems he prospers. So that's kind of the setting that leads us up to the time of the Passover. So I want to read... Um, a little bit about the, the lamb and how they were supposed to use that for the Passover. And so I want to turn to Exodus 12, and I'll read verses 1 through 14. Exodus 12, starting at verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their father, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it, according to the number of souls, Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it up, keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the upper two, on the two sides of the post, on the upper door posts of the house wherein they shall eat it and they shall eat the flesh in the night roast with fire and unleavened bread and with bitter herbs and they shall eat it eat it not of it raw nor sodden at all with water but roast with fire his head with his legs and the, with the puritans thereof and ye shall let nothing of it remain until morning that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn it with fire and thus shall ye eat it with their loins gird, and the shoes on your feet, and the staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite you, will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So God had just um, finished 
raining down nine plagues on the land of Egypt as punishment to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was refusing to listen to Moses as he delivered God's message to him to deliver to let the children of Israel go. He was to free them, but Pharaoh refused. There was nine plagues up until this point, and many of the plagues were showed the superior, superiority of God over the Egyptian gods. But God had one final judgment to bring to Egypt. Even the children of Israel were not exempt from this one if they didn't listen to the commands of God that, he, that were given to Moses. And I think this is probably one of the most vivid portraits we have of the coming crucifixion of Jesus Christ many years later. And if you look at some of the, the aspects that they were supposed to do, they were supposed to get a lamb without blemish, and Jesus lived a perfect life. It was supposed to be a male lamb in his first year of life, a young, perfect lamb. And they were also supposed to keep it with the, in their house for four days. It was supposed to spend time with, their, with them and their family. And Jesus also dwelt among those he was to save. He gave us an example to follow. The blood of the lamb spared them from the death angel. The death angel passed over their house. And so Jesus provides us with life. He spares us from death. His blood saves us from eternal death. They were supposed to eat the flesh of this lamb, and Jesus provides us with spiritual sustenance as well. So these are just a few examples how the Passover points to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the, the way the Passover pointed forward to Jesus, and why Jesus was referred to as the lamb. And then as we move on in the life of the children of Israel, they leave Egypt and start their journey toward the promised land, the land of Canaan, which God had told Abraham so many years before that his children wouldn't have it. On the way there, Moses met with God on Mount Sinai. Here God laid out the way he wanted the Israelites to live. This is where they were given the Ten Commandments, and they were also given many laws that covered various situations in their lives. And God laid out many different animal sacrifices that were used to atone for their sin. Many times these sin offerings included a young lamb. For example, I'd like to turn to Leviticus 5, where it gives us one example how they were, were to do this. Leviticus 5, verses 5 to 13. <clears throat> And it shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he has sinned in that thing and he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a female from the flock, of it, from the flock a lamb or a kid of the goats for his sin offering and the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin. And if he be not able to bring a lamb then shall he bring for his trespass which he has committed two turtle doves or two young pigeons unto the Lord one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. And he shall bring them unto the priest who shall offer that which is for the sin offering first and wring off his head from his neck and he shall not divide it asunder. And he shall sprinkle the blood of the sin upon the side of the altar and the rest of the blood shall be wrung out at the bottom of the altar. It is the sin offering. And he shall offer the second offering for a burnt offering according to the manner and all the priests shall make an atonement for him for his sin which he hath sinned and it shall be forgiven him. 
But if he be not able to bring two, dirt, two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then he that sinneth shall bring for his offering the tenth part an ephah of fine flour for his sin offering. He shall put no oil upon it, neither shall he put any frankincense thereon, for it is a sin offering. Then shall he bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it, even in memorial thereof, and burn it on the altar, according to the offering made by the fire unto the Lord. It is a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him, as touching his sin, that he has sinned in one of these, and it shall be for forgiven him, and the remnant shall be the priest as a meat offering. So here we have another example of a lamb being used for a sin offering. And this all is pointing forward to the time where Jesus would come to be the lamb that would save the world. We also see that God made provisions for those who were too poor to bring a lamb. They could either bring two turtle doves or pigeons, and if they were not able to use those, they could also bring a measure of flour. And if you notice, they also were to sprinkle the blood of the offering on the side of the altar. The Apostle Peter references this in the first epistle as he spoke of our sanctification of sin, from sin through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 also references the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So we see our need for our sin to be atoned by the shedding of blood. Our sin needs to be covered by the blood of Jesus. We see the Old Testament laws and sacrifices pointing forward to the future when Jesus would come as a perfect sacrifice and his blood would wash our sins as far away as the east is from the west. Also in Leviticus 2, God commanded them to only offer those animals that were without blemish. They were to give the best. They weren't supposed to bring the crippled, the sick, the maimed, the blind, but they were supposed to bring the best of the flock. So I think our our challenge with that is, you know, how is that with us today? Are we bringing the best in our lives to God? Are we putting our best effort into our relationship with it, with Him, or does our best effort go somewhere else? You know, it's so easy to put our effort into what we see in the here and now and forget what truly matters. You know, it can be easy to put our best effort into our job or our hobbies or cars and houses. You know, we all have areas of weakness that are easy for us to focus on, and we need to guard our hearts against that. But how is it when we come to worship the Lord? Do we bring our best? You know, if we desire a vibrant walk with the Lord, we need to give Him the best that we have. And as we worship, and as we go about our daily lives, we need to give Him the number spot in our lives. And as we do that, we can enjoy a deep, rich, and meaningful life, one that has purpose and value. So we've looked at just two examples of a lamb, and there's many more that you could look at. You could look at Moses as he took Isaac to the mountain. And there was a substitute lamb there. You could look at Isaiah 53 who talks about a lamb. So there's many more instances of a lamb being a sacrifice in the Bible. But those are just two that I wanted to take a look at this morning. But there's one problem with with this sacrifice, the way of doing things. Those animals were not sufficient. Hebrews 10 tells us that the sacrifice which they offered continually, year by year, could not make them perfect. Also, verse 4 of chapter Hebrews chapter 10, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. You know, even if the nation of Israel followed all these sacrifices, sacrificial laws, in the long run, that was not sufficient. 
as verse 2 of this chapter tells us, if this system was sufficient to make us perfect before God, he would not have brought something new. He would not have brought Jesus to the world to die for our sins. You know, if, if you ever have time, study that chapter, Hebrews 10. It's a very powerful chapter packed with a lot of truth and, and good things for us to study. So if these things were not sufficient, why were the people of Israel doing these things? You know, it might seem useless for them to do this thing, these things if that was not sufficient to bring us back to Christ. But the book of Romans gives us the answer for this. God used this law as a schoolmaster to introduce us to Christ. If you remember the sermon that John um, shared with us a couple weeks ago, he talked of our lives as being a progression. You know, as, we, as we're a young Christian in our infancy and move into the adolescent years and then the adult years, we mature as a Christian, and I believe it's the same way in the world at large. You know, if we think back to the time of Noah and Abraham and Job, that was before the law. That was when the world was in its infancy. Then God brought the laws and the prophets to Moses. And they, you know, God brought the laws that directed the people's minds toward Christ, toward God. And that's what Romans refers to as our schoolmaster. So I think of that as our adolescent years, as we're getting to know more, we're growing up a little bit more. And then we move into adulthood where Jesus comes and he fulfills the laws and the prophets and he brings a perfect plan of God. And so God's ways are so much higher than our ways and he needs to teach us a little bit at a time. And he, he leads us along. And I like it when ver in Hebrews 10:16 says, He will write the laws in our hearts and our minds and he will remember our sin no more. And I, I really like that. And as I studied for one of the lessons in our instruction class, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's what he's referring to there. He puts the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts and minds, and his ways are, are right there. We are the temple of God. So if these animal sacrifices were not enough, what is? And that's my next point I'd like to look at, is Jesus the perfect lamb. He was the lamb that was enough. This is how God restores our relationship with, with him. You know, if the blood of animals in the Old Testament was not enough, what was? Something more was required. You know, there needs to be a sacrifice of equal or greater value than the person who committed the sin. And an animal didn't cover that. So this was the way that God was able to accomplish this. He sent his only begotten son to the world. Jesus was the only lamb of God was superior and sufficient for this. And this, I just want to list a few reasons as to why he was superior to these, these Old Testament sacrifices. In Hebrews 10 and 10 and 11, it said Jesus died once for this, all the sins of mankind. You know, the, the sacrifices from the Old Testament needed to be offered again daily, you know, every day, every year. And they didn't take away your sins. It only satisfied God until he could send Jesus to take them away forever. Jesus does not need to repeat his death. He only needed to die once. One time was sufficient. Also, Christ lived on this earth as a man and yet was without fault or blemish. He was the only man to accomplish this. Therefore, there was no greater man 
that could die as a sacrifice for sin. There was no man, greater man that ever walked the face of the earth. You know, as we think about Jesus walking in perfection and without fault and blemish, you know, I don't think there's a, a person in the world that has done that for one day of their life, let alone their whole life. Um, you know, as we think about think about that, that is, you know, a miracle in itself. And then lastly, Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose again. And, you know, as we commemorate Easter, we, we observe, and observe and celebrate that. He came back from death into life, and there's no other sacrifice that has ever accomplished that. So those are just a few points of how that his sacrifice was far superior to the, the sacrifices of, of bulls and goats and lambs. And also, you know, it's also a challenge to me how God gave us Jesus who offered himself not by force, but willingly. He willingly surrendered himself to do this for us because of, because of his great love for us. So I was just really challenged by, by that and, and how that he was willing to do this for us and how the, the sacrifice of Jesus as a lamb is so perfect and so far superior to the sacrifices of the Old Testament sacrifices. So in closing, I just have a few things I would like to, for you cons to consider. You know, I ask you, as John the Baptist did so many years ago, to behold the Lamb of God. I challenge you to behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, and ask yourself, what do you see? I encourage you to search the scriptures and behold the perfect sacrifice, our Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see a loving Savior, a gentle shepherd, the guide of your life? Do you see a perfect sacrifice? Do you see a Savior who has such great love he died for us while we were yet sinners? Do we see a Savior who freed us from our bonds? Or maybe you don't see it that way. Maybe you just see him as a great teacher or just a, or less important than our earthly pursuits. Maybe our following Jesus is just an outward practice we do to appease our friends and family, but deep, deep in our hearts we'd rather be somewhere else. These are just a few of the questions, and there's many more that we could ask ourselves as we behold the Lamb of God. Is the Lamb sufficient for us? You know, can we say, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians 1, 27, Why determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and himself crucified? Is that what we want to know and what we want to focus on is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Focus on Jesus and the Lamb and his gift of forgiveness. Don't be distracted by the fleeting things of the world. And also just a, a challenge as we read through John 1 there, t looking at John the Baptist, he twice told the, the other people and his followers to behold the Lamb. So I think as followers of Christ, we need to follow the example of John the Baptist. You know, the second time he said, Behold the Lamb, his disciples left him and followed Jesus. You know, we're, we're called as followers and believers in Jesus Christ to point others to behold the Lamb and make followers of him and not make disciples of man. So I just encourage you, you know, as we go through this time of Good Friday, Easter, and Communion, to take time and consider Jesus and truly what he did for you and, and all the suffering that he went through. 
Let's kneel in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we bow before this morning. We thank you for the great gift of love you sent to us, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. I just pray that you would help us each to accept that perfect gift. Help us to surrender our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that he can give us life abundant, that our relationship might be restored with you, our perfect Father, our loving Father, who wants to bless and guide our lives. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chad, you have a song?